Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. I am your co-ghost, Ash, joined as always by John, the Liquor Guy. How's it going, John? I am so excited uh, for today's episode and uh, always happy to be back making some fresh spooky content. Fresh, fresh in the crypt, freshly dug up and ready for you, our ghoulish and terrifying listeners. But today, our, our dark presence is disturbed by two powerful and wonderful spirits. We're joined by Tyler Wallachek and Stephen Monticelli, the editors of Protean Magazine. How's it going, everybody? Hey, folks, how are you? Howdy. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, dropping by the Horror Vanguard crib. Um, maybe before we, before we kind of jump into the, the meat of today's episode, maybe you could take a few minutes just to talk about um, who you are, what you do, um, tell everybody a little bit more about Protean and how they can support the incredible work that you're doing. Absolutely. I'll take this, Stephen, if you don't mind. Um, we founded Protean a couple of years ago as a joint project trying to offer a, a new venue wherein artists and writers and critics on the left could have a space. And the idea was kind of to collect those different fields into one publication, which we hadn't really seen done before. And in doing so, we try to reflect our values of, you know, maintaining a spirit of criticism towards everything, as well as paying writers fairly and structuring the organization horizontally and democratically. So that's been a big part of what we've been up to the past couple of years in putting out our first issue and a lot of web pieces. Yeah, Stephen, what are your thoughts? That's exactly right. Uh, you know, we're currently a biannual print magazine along with a website collecting, you know, we think cutting edge writers and artists on the left. Um, we're a nonprofit, so that's how we're funded and maintain uh, ourselves. You can support us on Patreon. You can buy our magazine. Uh, and effectively, yeah, we're a, we're a collective of, of editors. Uh, we all, you know, put in our time um, as a volunteer effort presently with the uh, the main focus on you know really funneling the funding to people who are are doing this this work uh, this critical work right now especially during a time when you know we're seeing a lot of uh, private equity and venture capital coming in and closing down um, independent left leaning websites so yeah. so yeah that's who we are and kind of why we're doing what we're doing um, and we're excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. We're definitely uh, check the uh, for our listeners check the show notes for links to Protean and their Patreon and their Twitter accounts, because the content that comes out of that magazine is just absolutely phenomenal. Oh, hey, yeah, I, well, I that, think... it, that includes you too, Ash. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, uh, in no way in no way am I biased at all when I say. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but listeners may have noticed that we um, uh, Ash uh, has published something with Protean. We're a big fan of everything that you are all putting out like some really insightful critical essays some uh some amazing artwork in the print editions as well oh yeah oh, thank you. Um, yeah. so yeah everything that you that you will need to find out more about what protein are up to and how you can help support a kind of thriving left-wing literary culture uh can be found in the show notes 
just uh, for today. And with that out of the way, I mean, not out of the way, right? With that very important <laughs> thing highlighted at the top of the show so you can go support this wonderful work. Let's talk about today's film. And uh, I guess, uh, Tyler and Steven, what, what movie did you pick for today? <laughs> <laughs> Steven introduced us something very interesting. Uh, Holy Motors, which is by Leo Carra. Is that the right pronunciation? I believe that is correct. Yes, uh, this this fantastic kaleidoscopic film was my horrible idea to talk about on the. On the okay. <laughs> I love. Uh, I've, I've got to be honest. I I kind of wish, uh, Stephen, that you'd picked something that was, you know, maybe a little less linear, a little less kind of <laughs> fond of explaining itself. I mean, you know, it's just a bit obvious. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a pretty direct guy. What can I say? <laughs> for, for for people who have not seen Holy Motors, the kind of toast of the Cannes Film Festival in 2012 and a kind of now cult classic, you all know what time it is. It is time for the hor patented Horror Vanguard plot recap. Ash, please tell everybody what this film is about. Uh, this film is about $2.99 if you rent it on any of the many streaming services. But I'm Nice. I know. Okay, right? that that's, was, that's spent that's all day end, writing that show. one. That's the end of the show. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Was, this is my last appearance on Horror Vanguard. I wanted to go out with a bang. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Absolutely. Holy Motors is simultaneously a love letter to the history of cinema, a scathing damnation of digified culture, and possibly the best critique of stretch limousines being the standard vehicle for weddings I have ever seen. Dennis <laughs> Levant plays, I think, a total of about 12 different characters in the movie. The plot is a nonlinear stretch of anthologies tied together with little segments in the stretch limo. And it contains within it a loving homage to both Godzilla and the, the photography of Diane Arbus, which is incredible. Nailing the plot of this film down to kind of any linear explanation, I don't know. I think this is probably the first movie we've covered, including weird experimental art movies, that like describing a linear plot isn't useful or even meaningful in the greater sense of the film. What would you think about that? Yeah, I'd say that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best summation of the plot uh, that I've seen is that it's uh, a day in the life of a man who has nine different appointments in Paris. Ooh, well, I, lo I love the ambiguity there because it could be like nine different dentists he has to go visit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that's what it kind of reveals as it goes on, is that these appointments are actually more like a role that he has to step in as he travels around in his stretch limo, which is, has like a, uh, what is it, a vanity mirror and different prosthetics and makeups and ways he transforms himself into a different character for each appointment. So, I don't know, what do you think that has to say about the roles that we all play and how all the world is indeed a stage, as they say? This movie just it's like so this movie came out in 2012, right? Right. As like Internet culture as we know it today is is really starting to shape up and and the world of everything being controlled by apps is really just starting to round the corner. DuPont's characters like like I think, uh, you know, Mr. Oscar is, is the primary character he plays. And Mr. Oscar really like four sages working for an app, right? Like this is like gig economy to the max. Mm -hmm. huh. you know, just just being sucked into like 
because you know we we it's revealed later on in the film and of course spoilers are for cowards everything is spoiled here so deal with it but like in in the end of the film it's revealed that he's working for a larger corporation maybe a movie studio the agency yeah the the agency <laughs> yeah and Both like the connotations of that word and they 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 give him orders they send him around to uh, to all of these little acting gigs he has to do and if this movie would i think like if this movie would have been filmed in within the last 3 years it probably wouldn't have been like a driver handing him envelopes with his orders it would have just been like getting the gigs off of an app yes yeah yeah definitely yes the only um machinery that we see uh that's a part of this you know, broader apparatus that's driving him to do this work. The only pieces of it that we see are the folders themselves, the limousine and his interactions with the driver and his mm -hmm. later mysterious boss yeah. uh, very briefly. Yeah, I mean, the sense of what he's actually up to or what the point of all this is, is really ambiguous. But I thought one interesting reading of it is that um, when Oscar starts off his day, he's well-dressed. He has a, a BMW full of bodyguards following him, and he rides in a white stretch limo, right? So he's clearly at the behest of the rich or is himself rich in some way. So I, you know, maybe bring my preconceived notions to it, but I wanted to read it as an anti-capitalist take and the way that the world we live in is structured for the rich and by the rich and capitalism is set up to serve their ends. So we all, in a way, are playing out roles that are set up and scripted by them. And I think it's telling that Oscar starts off his day by portraying a beggar woman for a documentary style short almost in, in, mm -hmm. from, the, from the cinematography perspective. And uh, later goes on to play like a very sick man and ailing family members and various scenes of alienation and surreality and the, the hoops that we're all forced to jump through. So it seemed that at least one angle on this could be that uh, the world as it is currently structured forces us into these roles and, you know, shaves off the corners of our personality that don't fit or forces us to be people that we're not. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with that. There's um, there's a really interesting moment right right at the end of the film where uh, Monsieur Oscar's driver, Celine, has dropped him off and is returning the limo. And what she does is she puts on a mask uh, without any facial features. Um, so it isn't a case of that we would finally get to an authentic truth at the end of things, right? We, but what we actually get to is we get to another layer of, of alienation. It isn't suddenly that she takes off the mask and look, it's been, it's been him all along. Really. Right, it's right. like, there's a, there's another mask that comes over the top. And I think it would be a mistake to think that, you know, it's a film that's about the loss of authenticity and, you know, this idea of a kind of always already mediated performance is not something that you can get away from in contemporary society where we are we are all always already playing a role certainly certainly and i i think it's first off i just have to call out how we are discussing a non-linear film in an extremely non-linear fashion it, it almost <laughs> responds itself to it uh and, and we're skipping already to the end uh but you know, tying these pieces together, you know, he's operating, you know, giving the, given this piecemeal set of information, doing these specially defined tasks, uh, his, his driver, his, his limousine, these, these sort of 
you know, machines that are driving him forward and reminding him of his appointments, very much echoing sort of what you were saying about, you know, being pushed to do something on an app, but not understanding why and, and tying it into this, you know, serving the rich, but in this way that it is diffuse and, and spread out, you know, you don't really actually see in the end who you're serving, who you're entertaining, or rather who Oscar is serving and who Oscar is entertaining in a, you know, global capitalist system where the only, you know, cameras, so to speak, the, the stand in for God in some ways or technology broadly, they're, they're shrinking and we're just being, you know, pushed to, to do these specifically defined tasks, uh, you know, w without having any control over our labor, you know, the alienation of that being immense uh, and demonstrated, like you were saying, Tyler, in so many ways throughout the film. Yeah, I think that uh, it has a lot to say about how capitalism both confers and subverts identity in that Oscar's obviously taking on a number of disparate identities, but, you know, he himself He's a core character, but there's not a real sense of who he is. You know, we see a, a brief glimpse of his family and his background, but mostly he just seems exhausted by his work. And at one point he laments that there's a, you know, beauty might be in the eye of the beholder, but what if there is no longer a beholder? So yeah. if we're not acting through a mediated lens, you know, that could be read as authentic or that could be read as, you know, an unexamined life not being worth living. Yeah, he, he doesn't have uh, a bottom identity is what I took away from the film. Even yeah. the interactions with what seemed to his family uh, end up being appointments. Right. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And some and in later parts, yeah, he has a daughter and a family member as a dying old man. And uh, yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. And we can even talk about you know, the character's name. Oscar, obviously implies or connotes um, the awards, as well as I, I read that it was derived from the director's name, which is uh, Leo Carra. So there's Oscar in there, uh, which is, you know, an interesting projection of the self and a weird disintegration of identity, which might be on my mind because I just rewatched A Scanner Darkly yesterday by <laughs> coincidence. And uh, the whole, you know, the blank mask and the shifting mm -hmm. identities and the loss of boundary between self and other, that's all been in my head. So it was a trippy day of watching movies. I think um, Oscar's, Oscar's name pointed to something really interesting for me, and I'm glad you brought that up, and that's Oscar Wilde. Mm. And it, it reminded me of the, like, the famous Oscar Wilde quote, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Oh, that's spot mm. on. And I think that, that goes back to what John was saying, right? In the end, um, Edith Scobb's character uh, puts on the mask, but it's not just any mask she puts on. She puts on the mask from Les Yeux Sans Visage or Eyes Without a Face, the 1960s French horror movie. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that's yep. a movie she starred in, right? Yep. Oh my God, another layer. Right, and, th and through through this film, I think like the, the wearing of masks tells us so much because we never really come to learn or come to discover anything about the, the kind of like core base character of Oscar. Like we don't really know why he has this job, what what he does in his free time, if he's allowed any, you know, or like even when the acting stops for him, when he's done portraying a character, like those lines are very vague and, and kind of intentionally diaphanous throughout the text of the film. We, we have this mediation of kind of like app-based technology, alienations, jobs, and identity, right? Like all of us are fairly online through Twitter and through all these other platforms and oh, we portray ourselves extremely. in a way 
Yeah, we're extremely online. <laughs> <laughs> and like we, we portray ourselves in a way that's like and, and everyone who has social media does this, right? We portray ourselves in a way that's not entirely holistic. You know, you don't see everything through Twitter. You don't you don't get the same relationship with people. And it's mediated through a mask, but in some ways that makes it more authentic. And I think that that's one of the more interesting parts of this film. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of existentialist elements from down to the concept of the holy motor, or I think uh, Kierkegaard says it's, we find the holy in our passionate interactions with the other or other people. So Oscar's job might be, you know, adding meaning to his life itself while it simultaneously subtracts from it. But uh, additionally, I mean, it reminds me of the the no exit concept. I mean, everyone quotes hell is other people as mm-hmm. trying to say that, oh, you know, everyone sucks. But it's really <laughs> about um, how hell is living a life that's mediated through your perceptions of other people or other people's perceptions of you. So it was interesting to me that, yeah, that's a hellish kind of existence, but so is the opposite. So is living a life that's unexamined or unobserved. Mm-hmm. And I Mm. think he plays on that dichotomy with the character of the boss and uh, the driver. And the driver is, you know, her name is Celine, which comes from, I think, the root word for heaven. Whereas the boss is kind of a fat cat looking asshole who's dressed all in black and he has a more cynical take on things. So it sets up a tension there that isn't resolved. And I think the point is that it's not resolved. But uh, from the title of the movie to the kind of whatever animus is driving Oscar – there's definitely a uh, parallel between the ways that identity both sands us down and builds us up. It, it goes it goes really deep, too, because uh, Leo Kira is a screen name for Alex Christophe Dupont, the uh, director of the film. Oh, I did not realize that wasn't his real name. Yeah, so, so even his he's real name. wearing oh a mask in, <laughs> in a certain sense there. Oh, well, yeah, I think, can we talk about the directors in the beginning as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's even Steven. yeah, he's in it too. Yeah. Well, well, and and it starts with a a reference to Dante as well, mm-hmm. and and a reference to E. T. A. Hoffman, the great German Gothic short story writer. Um, because entirely. So it begins. It begins with with uh, the awakening in the bedroom, and there's a there's an old E. T. A. Hoffman short story about a man who finds a secret door in his house. And he opens the door and it's what comes on the other side that's kind of terrifying. But it's in a room that's covered in um, uh, in a kind of like forest scene in the wallpaper, mm-hmm. uh, which is deliberately, which I think is, I might be just reading too much into it, but it, it reminds me of the opening lines of Dante's Inferno, you know, where you get lost in the woods. Well, that has to be <laughs> intentional. That's why you're the lit crit guy, John, because I would not have picked up on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so Sorry, there's this, there's this, there's this uh, deliberate homage to um, kind of a classic, a classic kind of literary quest narrative, and a kind of ghost story, a kind of haunting gothic story that that we begin with, and I think this idea of we're circling around this issue of like authenticity, but I actually think that if you, I think the film kind of argues that. Like we have to get away from that conception of that's what a a self or a subject kind of is at the end of the day. That underneath it all, there is a kind of true subject. And uh, I think this film, especially in a lot of it, kind of existential thought, would put forward the argument that there that it's masks all the way down. <laughs> you <laughs> you won't you you're not going to get to the true Oscar because that that that's a kind of 
a, a fallacious way of conceiving yeah. of what it means to actually exist. Yeah, that's and, interesting because Stephen and I actually approached a similar topic in our essays for the first issue of Protean, which were uh, respectively through the lens of social media and through the lens of uh, data collection and simulacra of ourselves that are created and, and profited on by the internet. And how that plays into addiction and uh, capitalism and the alternate shattering and coalescing of our sense of self, it's engendered by the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the there's that uh, famous Deleuze and Guattari quote, you know, uh, seeing as there were two of us, there was already quite a crowd. Like, uh, <laughs> And so... It's it's perfect that you you bring that up because in the beginning of the film um, and and throughout the film and something that you just said previously about it being masks all the way down sort of pointing towards this idea of infinity or you know folding um, you know enfolding forms that keep continue to go all the way down like a, a fractal fractal yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, there's there's elements of that in Deleuze and Guattari's thinking, um, Deleuze's idea of the fold in particular. And there's some really interesting um, thought that I stumbled on when I was looking up this film by a, an academic. Her name is Sage Walton. She essentially writes about this film and, and some of the connections to Deleuze's work and how it uh, – sort of represents this delirium, this sort of Baroque aesthetic where there's there's uh, this proliferation of details and forms that are seemingly infinite. Um, and, and, you know, this is sort of a slice of an ongoing infinite series of performances by Oscar um, that, you know, you, you cannot see the end of or the beginning of. Um, and, and there's, uh, a really in the particular in the beginning where he opens that door in the forest wall with the, the forest wallpaper and he opens the door, he does it with his finger, which has mm. turned into a machine, um, which is just another fascinating and interesting connection to Deleuze's thought around, you know, sort of replacing the individual, uh, as the base root of analysis and ontology or other forms of philosophy with like, you know, an, the idea of more flexible idea of machines, um, and how, you know, your body is a complex machine and it's a bunch of machines that are pieced together. Uh, so there's, there's a, a ton of, you know, postmodern thought and tropes that are referenced, I think, in this film in very subtle and also explicit ways. Uh, I feel like that could play a lot into the commodification of labor as well and how yep. we're all instrumentalized by capitalism. Yes. I just really want to see anti-capitalism in this film because that's my jam. But no, it's there. <laughs> I certainly think that uh, there is. Oh yeah. Um, I, I mean, his his labor seems absurd. It's uh, Sisyphean. Grueling. Yeah. It's it's just un, un unending, unyielding. Um, and the there's only really one moment in the film that I actually get some uplift from it, and it's the interlude with the accordion. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Because that is just such an absolutely kinetic, joyous uh, scene filled with this group of people who are all participating in this collective of expression. They're jamming. That, uh, they're rocking out. They're just fucking jamming out. Yeah. You know, they're, I think it's what the French – what they call joie de vivre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's introduced by you know a, a cut to a piece of – sheet music in his, you know, in his limousine, which is sort of like the Doctor Who, uh, you know, machine that seems to be bigger on the inside randomly at certain points is introduced in that. And it's it's like him having fun. 
And so, you know, in doesn't, it, doesn't of, it say interlude in French on the yes. paper? So it's yep. literally announcing the movie's yes. own interlude. That's just a, a unique part of, you know, what may otherwise potentially be a depressing narrative or rather, uh, you know, like collection of, of images, you could say. And yeah. I, was, I was reading that that, that that was entirely intentional, too, that they added that. I think it's an intract. You know, yes. which, which is literally between acts. They added like a little refreshing break. Like you get like an aperitif in the middle of the meal that is this movie. Mm. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, there's a lot to chew on. There's a lot to chew on. And like post that that first uh, half, when we get past the accordion interlude, like things get a lot stranger. They get a lot more um, unsettling. There is, I think personally, the the... I don't know about the rest of you, but I was thinking about this in the context of: Is this a horror film? Mm. Is this is this a horror? Is this a horror film? And you know, as long-time listeners will know, hor the horror vanguard line is: Every film is a horror film. <laughs> the real horror is capitalism. <laughs> uh, indeed, it is. But the, there is there was one there was one sequence which I thought was probably the most unsettling out of all of them, which is his appointment with the teenage daughter. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite is, lines. Yeah. Is it, um, I, I don't, your punishment is to be yourself. Yeah, right? your punishment is to be you. To yeah. have to live with yourself. Ooh, that goes deep. Ouch. <laughs> and, it's, and it's this horrible conversation between, between, a, between a, a middle-aged man and his daughter that he picks up from her first party and he gets angry at her because she was not off like hanging out and dancing with the boys, but she was hiding in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, that's how it ends. It ends with this kind of crushing realization that even if you are a performer, even if you are entranced by the beauty of the act, you still have to be you and you can never escape from that like so hell is not only other people but hell is also having to be yourself and having to live with the choices that you have made and always having have had made them in a way that is kind of like really crushing in this she just gets out of the car and he drives off without her yeah um, it's, it's, it's really bleak it's really bleak and, and like that's that's the section that reminds me of a horror film because he he crushes her yeah, I think Oscar, you know, he that that scene takes a toll on him as well, or that performance. You can see it after he's finished, and you know, he has to play a father who, instead of empathizing with his daughter's struggles, just lays into her and and really yeah. crushes her. And you know, it, it it kind of invites a point of empathy where you're seeing that people who are cruel or people who are, you know, malicious towards others are really struggling in their own right and often acting out of insecurity or or you know emotional wounds as well. Yeah, I found that I found that scene to be really interesting. And I think I might have had like the inverse read of it because I found it to be kind of uplifting, mm. you know, because by, by and by through this film, we come to find that like almost everyone around him is also an actor. They're also playing a role. They're part of uh, Holy Motor and like the, the app or whatever. They're part of the agency or at least a lot of the people he interacts with, like everyone he kills is also himself. And there are so many people throughout the way that are kind of like very obviously also playing roles next to him. And so I was wondering, like, is is the daughter not also a role? You know, is she not also just cast for a bit part as kind of the the shy and verbally abused daughter? And then now she's out of the car and she's off to go pick up her next gig. 
Yeah, and I was kind wondering of like, that too. I mean, it's at first mm-hmm. when I was going through the movie before getting a little more context, I'd kind of assumed that these were wealthy people or otherwise connected people who were hiring him to play out their fantasies or their, you know, their inner emotional needs staged. And particularly when uh, Eva Mendez comes in and he plays the weird leprechaun sewer creature, Mr. Monsieur Man. <laughs> yeah, which was great. <laughs> so at first I thought, okay, she's a wealthy, famous model. She has this, you know, weird fantasy of kidnapping or what have you. But uh, yeah, it turns out that, I mean, everyone could be complicit in this or no one could be complicit. And just like under capitalism, our complicity is diffused and distributed between everyone who's a participant. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You know, I, I, in my second and third watching lean towards the young girl also being a part of the system. Uh, and, and it's, it's one of the nine appointments, I believe, if you count them yeah. carefully. And so ultimately, you know, he, he never gets a reprieve from this performance. Um, and, and it's, it's a really astonishing scene because it, you know, is a nod to certain aesthetics in terms of French cinema, but also, uh, is this phenomenal encapsulation of just an attitude of misogyny that often has been played out in mm-hmm. film historically. And and so it's, yeah, I think that was a horrific scene. It was far more horrific to me than the, you know, Monsieur Merde scene or uh, the motion capture, you know, demon sex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, was, right. that was just funny. That was just enjoyable. <laughs> Ridiculous. Just one thing I wanted to add is like, just because something is a perf- like, I think I think the 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 danger is that you fall into a binary between something being authentic and real and something being a performance. Yeah. Yes. But but performances performances are real. There is a kind of uh, I I'm gonna have to quote Werner Herzog. There is a kind of ecstatic. There is a kind of ecstatic truth that's being portrayed. You know, it's not realistic, but it's true. And that's where the horror of that, that of the, actually, that's where the horror of the whole film lies. It lies in the fact that even if we go, this isn't authentic, this isn't real, we're constantly being reminded of the performativity. Performances carry within them a kind of ecstatic truth that speaks to a, to a kind of reality that, you know, what Herzog called the truth of accountants can never really get to. So I certainly know that my Twitter account is full of ecstatic truth and also <laughs> horror. <laughs> I think um I think bringing up Herzog is 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 a is a deft move here. I think it's really really appropriate, right? Because not only is Herzog a an an absolute stone cold killer, but um Herzog also stars in the upcoming Disney Plus exclusive access uh, uh, television series, The Mandalorian, the Boba Fett origin story that we've all been craving for. You're kidding and, me. Herzog, he stars in it. Jesus, he is he is in the 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 series with a prominent role. Like he's he's not Boba Fett, unfortunately. That would have been fucking beautiful. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, but but he's like like I think I watched the trailer and I think he's like Boba Fett's mentor or or father figure or some kind of elder in Boba Fett's life. This kind of ties us back in to to kind of everything that's going on because like one of the interpretations for uh, Holy Motor. Uh, that's really common, or at least that I saw more often when I was looking at uh, other people's reviews of the film, is that like like this film was heavily and very intentionally in dialogue with the changing landscape of cinema, with cinema kind of shifting from being a film format to a digital format, and how along with that technological shift, 
we're having a bit of a cultural shift because sure like the 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 age of like the major studios is ending and that was an age of massive capitalist production but we're entering into like something of a darker hell where we're all of the big movies are made by one company and that one company only makes commercials for future movies yeah absolutely i think there's a telling point in uh, holy motors where oscar says I can't act without the cameras. You know, they used to be mm-hmm. bigger than I was, then they were the size of your head, and then now they can't see them at all. So, you know, with the age of iPhones and ubiquitous surveillance, everything is recorded, and so really nothing is recorded or nothing is particularly of significance. And that reminds me of Marvel movies, which are also of no significance. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and also, it kind of connects with that point that you were talking about in, in the, the line about uh, beauty being in, in the eye of the beholder. And it's like... Uh, everything is recorded. The the perpetual surveillance machine goes on and on, but like nobody's really watching, right? Nobody's nobody's really that. There's that old there's that meme about like oh the FBI watching you through your computer, but it's like if we are under government surveillance, it's through kind of like the algorithmic gathering of data. There's no mm-hmm. person. There is no audience. There's no there is no one person that's kind of paying attention. So these are all performances without audience, and so they're kind of sort of tragic in a way. Yeah. And so and so that's you know. I think it's and then we get a culture that's designed not really to be watched in the same way that something like Holy Motors demands your attention. You get something which is 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 to be consumed. It isn't to be watched. And I think that's a kind of important distinction. You know, what's an interesting parallel is that the NSA's entire surveillance apparatus from Prism and all the stuff that Snowden revealed, I think if I was reading it correctly, they've never actually really caught anyone using this thing. Or if they have caught terrorist threats, they've been manufactured or people with, you know, mental struggles that have been urged in a particular direction Mm -hmm. by the FBI. They have to create their own criminals to catch. It's the weirdest causality reversal, simulacra, panopticon shit that we live in. It's it's unnerving and absurd. Yeah, we've already got precogs determining all of the crime that's going on. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I have to jump in here and connect it to yeah. something that we were talking about earlier. I mean, when we're talking about the effect of the panopticon, it's, you know, to make prisoners play act effectively, you know, like mm. to, to begin acting like, uh, you know, the role of the good prisoner. Uh, and, you know, Deleuze had a really interesting quote that uh, a review by this guy named Leo Goldsmith starts his review of Holy Motors off with, which essentially says, you know, if the world is itself turning cinematic, becoming just an act, controlled and immediately processed by television and screens that include that exclude any supplementary function, then cinema ought to stop being cinematic, stop play acting and set up specific relationships with video uh, in order to develop a new form of resistance and combat the televisual function of surveillance and control. So it's, I think, very much touching on a lot of these things that you guys are talking about. Well, I think, Uh, unfortunately, cinema is becoming uncinematic, at least according to Scorsese, but not in a (laughs) subversive way. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. In in, in a way of becoming drivel. In a really fucking mind-numbing, boring, repetitive way that stages these jingoistic fantasies of American exceptionalism and, you know, ubermensch great man bullshit every single time there's the fucking superheroes and there's a big blue light in the sky that they got to blow up and they blow it up 
and then it ends yeah, and sets we, up another sequel in the post-credit scene. It's just I, fucking relentless. I'm not going to beat the hauntology horse here, but let's just say hauntology. <laughs> Ash covered that for us already. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I think to 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 tangentially touch on the Marvel Scorsese discourse, which we don't need to go into in too much detail. I said this before when we were, me and Ash were talking about this, and I said that my principal reaction, looking back uh, on a kind of, on a decade of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is just one of exhaustion. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm not even, I'm not even apathetic. I'm just exhausted of that. Um, But films like this that kind of, this is a film that you go come away from and you remember just how much cinema is actually capable of, how much can be communicated through narrative images. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that harkens back to the initial scene as well, where I didn't quite catch it, but I think when the director opens the forested door, he opens it onto a, a theater that's playing yeah. an old movie's old movies i think it was uh, the everyone in the cinema was blind was that correct i think they're supposed to be asleep uh, something yeah. like that yeah. yeah yeah they effectively look like ghosts mm-hmm. yeah or, it's kind of a, or, an allegory dead, even yeah yeah and then and then wait we we aren't even going to talk about the fact that uh, a baby walks down the aisle followed by a large black panther yep oh yeah <laughs> that was a dog no no it was a, a panther bear. It's like a panther, yeah. Superhero movies. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, well, that's a little on the nose that he called that one ten years ahead of time. Everything's on the nose these days. <laughs> An embodiment I, of a major comic book franchise stalking a, a child, perhaps perhaps a, a man child. Yeah, in a in a movie theater filled with dead people or ghosts. Or they're just I'm, bored. I mean, I I think we have taken a very kind of high-minded and theoretical approach to this film, uh, which I think it warrants and it deserves. But also, we should kind of emphasize, this this film is just absolutely amazing oh yeah Uh, it's it's a b-schlock montage made by somebody who's like an art house cinema guy yeah it's 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 a b-movie made by a delizian philosophy grad student (laughs) and it it absolutely rules i love i love the sequence of monsieur mad running running through a graveyard eating flowers (laughs) and, and running past running past gravestones whose epitaphs have been replaced with websites oh i forgot it's, about that, that was it's brilliant. it's it's so weird it's and it's all scored with the music from godzilla oh that's right <laughs> which it you is, know i think perfect. it's referencing how in so monsieur merit is a character played also by denis levant in another short film that the director made for a compilation called Tokyo, um, which is kind of in the vein of like uh, Paris Jetem, where it's different directors doing shorts. And mm-hmm. Mr. Merritt is the focus of this short, and he's apparently running around Japan and causing mm-hmm. Godzilla-like havoc. Yep. And the media um, <laughs> you know, makes an item out of him, and it's, it's sort of a subversion of the media's sensationalizing discourse and how Mr. Merritt is eventually put to trial for his chaos and he can't even, you know, speak the language. And there's a, a blue blood bougie figure who claims to be able to communicate with him. I have not seen it. That's what I got from the synopsis, but it sounds totally fascinating and adds a whole nother subterranean layer to Mr. Merritt's literal subterranean adventure <laughs> where he drags Eva Mendes underground and then 
<laughs> continues to eat non-food objects. Yeah, he eats money as well. You can't. Oh, yeah. Talk about symbolism. Oh wow! So I really, and, I really and her uh, hair as well. Yeah, I really love the symbolism of uh, Monsieur Mad, and it's like one of my favorite parts of that whole sequence is the photographer's assistance. Her assistant is trying to get uh, Monsieur Mad to to join the photo shoot because he's so weird and it would be artsy. <laughs> She's and like, she, it's like she, Diane Arbus, right? <laughs> yeah, she references Diane Arbus, and Diane Arbus spent her entire career photographing uh, freak shows, LGBTQ individuals, just kind of people on the outskirts of the margins of society, and not not necessarily to exploit them, but to to show their humanity and and to bring them back into this artistic mode that they were being excluded from. And Diane Arbus has this great quote, and it's, um, <clears throat> a photograph is a secret about a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. And, like, nothing cans this movie better than that quote. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting moment where, uh, so the director seems only capable of speaking one word at a time. And whenever <laughs> Eva Mendes is in the shot, he's saying, beauty, beauty. And then when Mr. Mare shows up, he says, give me the Hasselblad, which I think is the kind of camera that Diane mm -hmm. Arbus used, and then starts saying, weird, weird. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the only, you know, summation he it's can get of it. The entire sequence is so Brechtian in the alienation that it can create in the viewer. And, and it, having a character just repeating a line like that is just perfect. It's just perfect for, for the, the feeling that that entire sequence generates. So a bit of a tangent, a bit of a side note. Uh, but the boss, so the boss that joins uh, Mr. Oscar in the car... Uh, what do we think about the complicated geopolitical decision to portray uh, Mikhail Gorbachev that way? <laughs> you even had the Weinstein birthmark. That was yeah, boom, deep wow. cut, deep cut. Well, you know, Gorbachev did have an acting career of his own in Pizza Hut commercials, so another <laughs> layer of meta commentary there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this. I really like that scene where he says to uh, Oscar, to Monsieur Mert, to the mocap guy, to the father, to he says to him like. A few of us are getting concerned that you don't really believe in this anymore, right? That you don't really believe in what you're doing. And why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep doing this to yourself? And I, one of my favorite lines in it is he says, I keep doing it for the same reason that I started doing it, which is the beauty of the act. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's one of the kind of really prescient, sharp comments on alienation that like, labor is like irreducibly alienated right down to its most kind of molecular level that we are alienated not just from uh our, our fellow workers from the things that we make but from ourselves but there is the there's still the kind of power of the beauty of the act which is what draws us to kind of especially creative pursuits and i think that's what the film is trying to kind of push as well so I really like that conversation. I also think that the guy who plays his boss or the kind of authority figure is just amazing. And I want him to be in like, you know, in the, in the next 20, I'm like, I want a 20 minute like villain monologue from this guy. Your open support of Gorbachev is probably one of the hottest political takes we've had on the show. <laughs> so I think I'm... Um, I was just going to say, I think we buried the lead a few times here, but there's a sequence that that we keep bringing up, but not not giving the, I think, uh, critical, perhaps even academic discourse it deserves. And that's the mocap video game snake demon sex scene. 
<laughs> and I think like it's it's absolutely totally absurd. But then again, so is our entire existence. And I find that makes it almost one of the most grounded sequences in the whole experience. Because it's something that, like, there are mocap actors doing that shit as we speak. Yeah, it's another layer of, you know, simulacra and simulated reality. And that we see him acting out these moves, but in a, in a context that only he can see. And we only see the, you know, the back the background of him wearing the motion capture suit and mimicking all these Kung Fu and you know, action movie moves. And then the same with the sex where it's very, you know, bizarre and alienated and clearly for the benefit of the watcher, not as, not as much as the participants. In fact, Oscar even, <laughs> even taps out. He's like, I need a break at some point because he's exhausted by going through these motions. Yeah. He's, he's literally running on a treadmill at mm-hmm. one point. I mean, that's pretty on the nose as far as the movie gets uh, in terms of placing him on a treadmill that is increasing in speed without his input and he has no control over it. Uh, And he gets thrown off of it violently and then is made to do something completely disconnected and absurd uh, that, you know, it's like he doesn't know what that end sequence is going to look like. But we as the viewer are given that privilege. Uh, We even get to see it being constructed on the screen. Mm hmm. Yeah, we keep coming back to Marvel, but I mean, the green screen thing is is a common critique of a lot of the mainstream schlock that we see in that, you know, it feels unreal, it, the CGI feels weightless, the actors don't have anything to react to organically, so there's something kind of hollow about the performances sometimes, yep. and I mean, it, it's it's the part of the movie where it's most self-referential about cinema, I think. And the fact that, you know, he's blindly firing a gun and we can't see what the targets are. It's all, you know, anything could be substituted against the green screen and it could stand in for any action, sex or kung fu scene in any, you know, recent movie. Yeah, there's there's uh, no director present in the room. It's a voiceless or it's a bodiless voice speaking to him, directing him on what to do. Uh, and, and then it's it's really interesting that, you know, that's one of the earlier scenes uh, and it, it just sort of alludes to the simulation that can result from body capture like that. Um, you know, the whole James Dean being used. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yes. You know, resurrected. Yeah. Being all, resurrected. all the digital de-aging from the Disney Star Wars movies fits in well exactly. with that, too. God, yeah, it's getting and disturbing. There's a there's a movie that I'll reference really quickly called The Congress, which if any of you've seen it, you might know what I'm talking about. It's a psychedelic part animated, part real like part real live you know film, part dystopian future. You know, it's like a three part interesting movie where this subject is explicitly focused on in the first part. You know, Robin Wright's character effectively gets digitally scanned and signs away a contract to Miramount Studios to use her digital likeness on screen in perpetuity, uh, you know, and that she can never act again. So it's it's certainly commenting on where we're going and where we already are. Yeah, that caught up really quickly. I was I did not expect the uh, you know our dystopian predictions of our last year's issue to come true so quickly. But you know that's the magic of modern cinema. Yeah, I think um I think the broader conversation around CG is really really interesting because you have movies like 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 the Marvel films, right? Where like all of the villains and like like once it's time to fight, everybody looks like they're made out of play doh and their bodies are just being kind of limply tossed, like as if they didn't have bones. And they they fly through things as if they're simultaneously 
infinitely dense and indestructible, but also totally weightless and aloft in the air. Yeah, it's really but, uncanny. But then on the other side of that, <clears throat> you have George Miller in Mad Max Fury Road, which uses extensive amounts of CG and green screen and computer graphics and post editing, but nobody fucking noticed. Like nobody noticed a single one of those CG elements because it was done well. Like it was it was used in proportion with everything else. It wasn't overtaxed and over relied on and bent out of proportion. It was used in concert with all these other effects. Yeah, I've heard that critique a lot. It's really interesting that um, you know a lot of movies get away with using CG in background scenes and things you would never notice, but only to enhance the organic performances and not to substitute for reality. Yeah, but again, we come back to this this idea of of that there might be a reality, that there might be a kind of like real truth that we could get to, um, you know. And I think this is this is a film which is. It's a film which is a which is about films, right? That's mm-hmm. there's that old there's that old uh, Godard quote that the best the best uh, critique of a film is to make a film, uh, and this is one that has just went well. I'm going to make a film about cinema itself. I'm going to make a film about literally every other film, <laughs> <laughs> and these ideas of like what what happens to to an object to something when you point a camera at it is is one that kind of like we've been trying to work out since you know for the last 110 120 years you know when you had the like italian neo realists in the in the 60s and 70s who would take uh film cameras out into the streets and would film people coming home from work as if that would get that was going to get you with the truth but like to observe something is to change it you can't you can't pretend that you're going to get at something real if what you produced is a series of moving images. Because even though we think of the images as ultimately truthful, I think, I think this film is, is very much on the side of thinking that there is no kind of real truth behind the image. What there is, especially now, is nothing but the simulation. There is nothing but the simulacra, the, the endless procession of things which could be real, which have the same kind of affective impact, but really... They just concealing yet another image. So I love I love that uh, that that discourse right about about the endless simulation and kind of the the repetity of the experience because I think that's that, that's one of the key elements for how things have shifted because there's always been movies that were like absolutely calculated financial decisions you know like like there are all, there have always been like uh, just ridiculous sequels that have never needed to happen. You know, and like like Star Wars is still a great example of this. Star Wars was written to be one single film, but then it made a boatload of money and the studio was like, yeah, how about we just keep making these in perpetuity? And like one of the things that uh, I think this movie kind of speaks to is like we get we are just beat over the head with scene after scene after scene after scene. And we have no time besides that little accordion reprieve in the middle. We like we never really get a moment <laughs> to process what we've seen or catch our breath. And that really reflects reflects the the kind of cinematic landscape we've landed in, right? We have like Marvel movie after Marvel movie after Star Wars movie after DC. Disney Plus is launching, and it's going to launch with like forty different Star Wars TV shows. And like the the media landscape is just like it's it's a machine gun shooting straight to video release DVDs right in your face, and you have no time to actually look at anything or catch any of it. What's amazing to me is that Netflix and HBO Go or whatever these big corporations make their biggest deals buying old syndicated shows. Like they'll yep. pick up Seinfeld or Friends for a hundred million 
And I, I don't know what the calculations are behind that business decision, but you know, talk about hauntology. We're just reliving the ghosts of old sitcoms. Yeah, like what is like like Netflix still makes it. I think what its most viewed show is The Office, right? I believe it's still, it, yeah. it's still like everything that they do, all of their business decisions are based off the fact that people watch The Office on Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> and all their new content sucks. Yeah, yeah. And I think like one of the things about their new content is like outside of like stuff like Stranger Things, like one of the reasons why like new Netflix shows only kind of last for a season unless they, they're Stranger Things and they absolutely explode with success mm-hmm. is that Netflix recognizes that like its business model is people who are going to binge those on a single Saturday and go through the entire series at once. And then, like, releasing multiple seasons stops being kind of worth it when people absorb less like watching a TV show and more like watching, like, an eight-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah, and when you're at the end of a binge just feeling awful and greasy and just hating yourself, (laughs) it's not like you remember discrete episodes. You remember this weird blur of plot and character melding together without beats. It's just a nonstop glut of content. And that's what this movie felt like, but condensed into one singular experience. Yeah. I had to watch this movie like at least two times, three times to feel like I took away uh, a, a relatively coherent appreciation of it because it truly is just nonstop. Yeah, the, the pace doesn't let up. Um, I mean, there's there's one sequence. It's maybe one of the shortest sequences is where he's been driven through Paris uh, and he suddenly tells uh, Celine, stop, stop, uh, stop the car right now. Stop it right now. And he dives out of the car. He mm-hmm. takes off his shirt and puts on the balaclava and he runs over to um, a really famous. It's it's a quite well-known restaurant in Paris. And there's this uh, banker who sort of resembles him from the it start is, of the film. It is yeah, it's literally played by him. Yep. It's him at the start of the film. And he shoots him, <laughs> shoots him in the head before getting like absolutely like taken out by bodyguards. And I, I, there's this sort of kind of explosiveness that comes from that compression, that, that reducing everything down to like just that two hour window packs so much into it that you can't, the pace just kind of accelerates until we get right, into almost the he kind of disappears at the end back into his limo because immediately after that he runs into uh kylie minogue yes uh, who, who who has a character name but i think we should just refer to her as kylie minogue <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, yeah what did you think of that that sequence that scene almost encapsulates um the what you're talking about the self-awareness of the ridiculousness of what's happening and unfolding in the pacing mm-hmm. And being lost in it, in that he shoots the character that yep. is himself. He then is gunned down right after saying, you know, it is done, which is just amazing. It's hilarious the way I think he says that. Gets shot down, and then this crowd surrounds him. Celine must then come out of the limo and lift him up and say, we're sorry, he's confused. And it's like, <laughs> I'm confused as well. Thank you for pointing that out. And brings him back to the limo, and everybody just kind of goes on as if this is a normal occurrence. Um, you know, not, nothing is out of place here. It's just that, you know, he's, uh, he's losing the thread in his performance, just like his boss said. Yeah. I saw that as a moment where, you know, it, whether it's a anti-revolutionary critique or anti-violence statement, what have you, it's the moment where, you know, whoever his assassin is supposed to be, it's the moment where someone snaps and acts drastically, you know, 
in a, a violent way, but at the behest of an unjust system. And like you said, it goes away quickly and it's treated like he's confused and it's swept under the rug and he's basically resurrected to play another role. But I thought it was interesting how they stage, you know, the masked madman attacking, you know, the symbol of greed and exploitation under capitalism, but how quickly it's, it, you know, it's brushed off. Yeah. And the sense that he, you know, he plays himself and the banker, again, kind of ties into how we're all either complicit or opposed in this system. I so I really, really, really love this scene just because of how dense it is. And like we could do a whole episode on this scene alone, right? Because as he's being gunned down by the bodyguards, he's just screaming, aim for the crotch. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then like so so is that is that kind of like a diegetic thing, right? Like is it did he did he pack the best squibs in his crotch and he wanted it to play off a little comedic, right? Or is that like a ninth are we, are we playing like 3D Star Trek chess with this, right? And it's like he he does this act of like hypermasculine violence that's supposed to be revolutionary and in the end he gets his dick blown off. He loses the masculinity right there at the end, but they but they mess up the sequence and the shot so he doesn't quite get what he was going for. And it's just, okay. it's so, like, the whole sequence is just so dense and so loaded. It's perfect. But yeah. what's really what's really great is that immediately after that, we get this breathing space, which is uh, the the sequence with the music, another musical sequence with, with Kylie Minogue. Um, and which is weirdly, well, not weirdly, but it's, like, deeply melancholic. Yeah, like we have we we have this we have this kind of intense hyperviolence that's you know borderline cartoonish, and then there is this melancholic musical number about what could have been the kind of and you know that's the hauntology uh, alarm going off in the background that you can hear again, <laughs> but this this idea of what what we what could have happened. But because of the roles that we have to play, the roles that we are all confined into. Well, you know, it ends with what appears to be a really tragic double suicide, that section, as he rushes off for another appointment. Um, yeah, so I just thought that, that that was a kind of really interesting uh, juxtaposition. Well, what you have to note there is uh, there's a few things. One, that double suicide is her next appointment, yeah. which yeah. reveals. And then secondly, the location of that sequence, that uh, department store near the bridge, which is shown at the end, the bridge was actually the scene of uh, a, a much of one of Leo Krauss' previous films. Um, Lovers at the Bridge, I believe, is the name of it. And yeah. You know, he had to spend a lot of time making that. I believe it was an arduous process for him. And then his wife uh, passed as well. So uh, Holy Motors was sort of him coming out of the wilderness after not making a film, major film since that, um, really only having made uh, the short for Tokyo in between. And so the suicide, I I believe Tyler, you know, you pointed this out to me earlier. uh, It was sort of a reference to his wife's suicide as well. sort of nodding to his tendency of auto portraiture in his films. Yeah. And that sequence too. Um, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because we, you know, we, we, we get the idea that like they're, I, I think they're still acting right when they're meeting each other as actors yes. who've maybe had an affair. Yes. Because it, it, it occurs like metatextually with her, uh, doing you know like a, a a fake suicide leap for her next appointment as an actress yeah at least we, we get the idea that's fake because all the deaths we've seen up until this point are just actors dying yes 
and each each scene is sort of you know um, to a more or less extent. This one being, I think, to the greater extent, a uh, a play on the reveal of a mask um, or the the takeaway taking away of a mask, only to then reveal another. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of those ones where it was a a, a mask that attempts to misdirect uh, mm-hmm. in its in its portrayal, and, and and that even happens in the end when you know you think finally he's going home for the evening at least, uh, but it's a it's a home of loving chimpanzees. That's right. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we should that, we should probably talk about that as well because uh, that is that is that is a hell of a left turn for this film to make right at the end. Oh my goodness, Ser- seriously, and it and it uh, really to me was a haunting scene. Um, but it gave me mixed feelings because I felt both deeply melancholic yet uh, optimistic somehow in that one, um, you know, he is clearly not with his family. Uh, it's a weird fate to have to spend the night with chimpanzees like that. And then the song that's playing as he's smoking the cigarette outside on this street that looks like it stretches on forever into suburban nothingness. Um, you know, he's he's. He's standing there with this song playing, you know, would you live again? Would you relive yep. and live it all over again? And, you know, my uh, Nietzsche alarm went off and I thought, oh, the, <laughs> the eternal return, you know, yep. sort of the demon coming to him and saying, would you keep doing it? Would you do it all over again? Um, yet at the same time, uh, and, and that being a sort of horrific vision, or if you agree with Nietzsche, it could be, you know, one of the most wonderful things. And then at the but- same time, this joyousness, this op optimism as he like kind of looks off at, towards a light that you can't see and you know maybe he's going to go on to the next day and keep you know doing it for this you know beauty that maybe we can't see but he is seeing through his eyes in that moment that's very insightful Stephen, because i was just reading the chimpanzees as a reference to the ronald reagan classic bedtime for bonzo <laughs> <laughs> beloved by all <laughs> Okay, we got we got we got Reagan, we got Gorbachev. Is this right. is this this is a very complicated geopolitical statement being made by this film? And this film's got everything. I'm telling you, man. Yeah, I uh, love I love films that like you know it does, doesn't like this film is very good, but it's also very dense. And like regardless of the good or bad slider, like if your film is just full of nonsense, that's some of my favorite work. Yeah, it's it's a coherent nonsense, you know. It's the way that it's staged and the structure that it sets up allows everyone at all times to be both acting and not acting. So it's it's really ingenious in the context and the narrative that it creates to enable that reading, and in the way that it comments on basically everything. You know, mentioning how this movie kind of encapsulates everything. Uh, is a good note to kind of round out our discussion as we we cross the hour mark here. So I'm going to do a little editing magic here, and I think that's a good that's a good part to go out on the show. But I do have one more question about the movie to kind of throw to the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, we we've kind of jumped all over the place in our in our discourse here uh, about the film because it is very it's very nonlinear, right? You can dice up the sequencing of this film a little bit and be pretty okay. Uh, but the final scene, I think, is very important to exist at the end of this film. I think if you put that in any other place, it would lose its meaning and its impact. The final scene of Holy Motors is is the the motors themselves. It's the the white stretch limousines that we've seen all throughout the movie that are that our actors travel around in. Mm. 
and the the limousines start having a conversation amongst themselves discussing you know like that they're tired from a long day of work they want to go to bed but then a lot of them are worried that people don't want to see machines anymore they don't want to see them so they're going to be phased out for something else in the coming future and they're worried about their their careers and their lives so what do we make of this final sequence well, the first thing it evoked to me was Don DeLillo's Cosmopolis, wherein, well, maybe that's more the overall structure of the movie, but wherein a rich man or a, a man of power of some kind is toted around town in a stretch limo, you know, encountering different appointments and uh, dealing with different aspects of modernity. But the instrumentalization of the limousines themselves really kind of caught me off guard at the end because it is deeply weird. But I thought it had something to say about... Uh, you know, how we are becoming machine-like and our machines are becoming more human and the holy motor that uh, drives everything is perhaps not so different in this age of animated technology. Yeah, I, I think that's very insightful, um, you know, and I think it ties it back to the beginning of the film in some ways um, where, you know, there's the the maybe it's the inverse of, of this where it's a man with a machine element um, and then there's these machines with a human element, which is the voice. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it, they, they echo, you know, some very human concerns as well as we mm -hmm. facing things like climate change, um, broadly the human race, there are existential deep doomer concerns about, you know, genetic annihilation. Um, but then there's also, you know, that applied to more uh, morbid or uh, pernicious worldviews like white nationalism. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's just an interesting, um, it's an interesting connection that tries to draw together, like what you're saying, Tyler, like the, the mechanization of human life um, and, and how, like, you know, we are always interacting with machines, uh, and, and humans will change as machines change and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, really love where you two are going with this. And I think like, I would just add to that, that when I was watching that final sequence, it just reminded me of all those mundane conversations I've had during day jobs where you're talking with people and we're when you're just talking about like departments might be merging, management's changing, and you're all wondering who's going to get fired, who's going to be made obsolete by these corporate changes. Oh, we're getting in some new technology. Is that going to end my job? And then on kind of like a meta level to that, you have like the entire Hollywood apparatus is constantly chasing any new technological innovations that could allow it to extract more money from the movie going public, you know, uh, public. You have like like uh, Gemini Man, which is an absolute flop filming at 120 frames per second that no one asked for or wanted. You have mm -hmm. like like 6K and 8K resolution coming around the corner at a time when like Warner doesn't even use that. Warner downscales everything to 2K before sending it out to theaters. Yeah, because it looks yeah. terrible. I mean, one of the biggest scourges of modern TV and film, I feel like, is the soap opera effect, which I cannot mm -hmm. unsee. If anything is higher than yep. like 24 frames per second, it looks to me like it was shot on a camcorder. And I, I just yep. I cannot get around it. It completely reveals the artifice of everything behind the production, like The Hobbit being a particularly bad example. But it's 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 absolutely everywhere. And I cannot stand it. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, drives me wild. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really interesting that you you bring up uh, Don DeLillo and um, because the the Cronenberg's adaptation of, of Cosmopolis showed at Cannes the same year as this. Oh really? I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. So, Cro so Cronenberg made made uh, 
directed the adaptation, which is really right. good. Yeah. Um, and was part of the same same Cannes Film Festival. And I think there is something to this, this idea that increasingly as technology becomes closer to us, we see more of ourselves in the in the technological. But really what this underscores to me is that we've we've always been technological creatures. We've always been been, been cyborgs. You know, we've always been mm-hmm. inter, oh, yeah. inter, interacting with the technological. And so it's not a surprise that, that technology is starting to pick up uh, kind of what traits that we would assume would be human in inverted commas. So I think the the last scene is very it's very weird. It's very weird. But and it has a kind of like streak of gallows humor to it mm-hmm. that ultimately the kind of glamour of the stretch limousine is contingent. It's it's fallible, it's fading, and it's going to be replaced. I am not sure where that leaves Oscar or Celine either. Um that is that is a, another question that maybe we can continue to ponder. That's a good one. That's a good one to leave our audience considering where 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 does the endless march of technology and CD resurre- or CGI resurrection leave the future of artists in cinema. So I wanted to, I wanted to uh, just thank you both <laughs> for coming thank on the you. show today. Yeah. This is a that fantastic a conversation. This was so good. That was good. a lot of fun. It's been been a pleasure. So we've uh, we've already we've already talked about about where we can find uh, Protean and where we can support that. Uh, how about uh, for you too? Where can we find you online? I think I'll also maybe use this selfishly as a as a segue into you know once again plugging our our, our next issue. Oh, please uh, do. Which which I think a lot of the themes out of our discussion today, uh, which you pointed out earlier, is uh, Albert Camus' birthday. Um, they they sort of tie into the focus of our next issue, which. Um, you know, plays on the the theme of you know Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus, and this repetitive action as as sort of a a, a curse or a punishment that you know people find themselves living under, um, but also a sort of radical, ecstatic opposition to it, um, with also a sort of a nod to some of the philosophy that we've been talking about earlier um, with Deleuze Guattari, uh, in, in like smashing this you know current system that we live in where we are all sort of condemned to play these roles and live repetitively, um, you know, in, in the service of something larger than us. But um, in, in, the, in, in the sense of the way we're going to do it, we're going to, you know, be showcasing some great writers that uh, really ground, I think, these ideas and these themes in, in reality and in, in their lived experience. Um, and, and sort of, you know, come at it from a bunch of different angles, um, both, you know, critically and poetically, as well as in, in fiction and through art. Um, and, and, you know, Tyler, if you want to jump in, in terms of some of the folks we're featuring, um, I know you wanted to touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we've been working to develop what we kind of, uh, have been calling lyrical criticism, only partially tongue in cheek. So <laughs> it's the idea of, you know, bringing in theory and politics and what have you. But instead of making pretensions to journalistic objectivity, which we tend to believe does not exist, we encourage our writers to integrate their subjective notions and their own experiences, uh, both because we like lyrical, prosaic descriptions of that, but also to, um, you know, bring a humanistic element back to critique and offer a more holistic view. But in 
And to do so, we've brought in some really, really fantastic creatives. Uh, the cover art will be done by Ellie Valley, renowned yeah. cartoonist who we've seen a preview of what he's working on to illustrate our Sisyphus metaphor. It's looking beautiful. Super excited about that. For writers, we have fellow podcaster Maximilian Alvarez of Working People, who is just a gem. Um, we've got Sophie Wiener, who is a former editor of Splinter and excellent blogger. Sophie Hagney, who is a very published, very insightful writer. Uh, who else do we got, Stephen? We have Tongo Eisen Martin musing on some uh, poetic interpretations of capitalism. We have myself and Stephen doing our <laughs> usual self-insert <laughs> uh, editor editorial comments. Uh, I'm going to be talking about climate change and how it provides a weird displaced sense of body horror in that the lungs and the veins of the planet are literally being smothered and polluted and choked and what that you know means for the perilous future of life on our planet. And Stephen, do you want to talk a little about your piece? Yeah, sure. I, um, I'll just be sort of trying to flesh out sort of the broader thematic vision of what we're talking about, what, you know, we mean when we say, um, you know, the title of anti-Sisyphus and trying to draw a thread between all the contributors we have. And, and so, um, you know, we're, we're excited about, um, what we've got coming and we've got a bunch of other great illustrators and artists. We're going to be featuring, um, some fiction writers we, uh, are really excited about and, um, you know, you can pre-order it right now or contribute on Patreon and get yourself an issue there. Uh, and if you're unsure, you can always, uh, you know, buy a cheaper PDF version. It's half price. Or you can <laughs> get stuff online. It's great and it's free. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're just stoked to continue to keep doing this thing. And, um, you know, we'll be hopefully talking to more folks like you about it uh, as we get closer to, to print. Hell yeah. And of course, links to all of that will be in the show notes. And we definitely encourage our listeners to go check out the wonderful writing that appears on Protean's website and the print editions. This is this is a really exciting time for an emergent kind of like uh, left wing literary culture. Um, I think Protean, I think a host of other places are doing some really exciting work. And it's um, yeah, I just want to kind of encourage everybody, please do check out Protean. Please do follow them on Twitter. Uh, please do think about supporting them through uh, Patreon and do check out the website as well uh, to read more than just Ash's excellent column uh, that he wrote for them. <laughs> Oh yeah, this 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 episode has secretly just been the longest possible plug for a single article I've written. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's relevant, you know, ontology and nostalgia and remake culture all comes in, so worth a read. Well, I am at Twitter under Wallet Check, which is a bastardization of my last name. So <laughs> I figure that's the easiest way to teach people to pronounce it. So like checking a wallet, wallet check, that's me. I'm on there constantly. And uh, I am uh, Steve Anzetti, which is a portmanteau of my first name, and uh, Vanzetti. So you can find me there. I'm also terminally online. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we will see you there on the Internet. Cool. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much to our friends and comrades from Protein Magazine uh thank you to ash thank you uh of course most of all to to all of you for listening to the show uh please do remember that if you like the show if you want to uh see more of 
uh, that good spooky HV content if you want early access to every episode and if you want to get access to the Arcane Book Club of Horrors then please do think about supporting us for just a few bucks a month over on patreon.com slash horror vanguard you can find Ash uh, and me on Twitter as well as the show at horror vanguard um, the terminal online illness has has long since taken root in all of us there's nothing we can do about it uh, but until next time stay spooky thanks for tuning in creeps and comrades and remember stay, stay spooky, spooky.